Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship together this morning and to engage you and your word. And we pray that as we uh, talk about what you have called us together to do, what our purpose is, how we go about doing that, uh, Father, that you would speak to our hearts And help us, Father, to have some practical ways today that as we, as we leave that we can begin to implement changes in our own lives, in our families, and also within our church, God, that honor you, that bring you glory, and that help uh, us accomplish your mission in a deeper and better way. Uh, we give this time to you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. Uh, get excited, elementary kids, because Pastor Weston has the whiteboard out this morning. <laughs> Chaz told me I looked like a uh, college professor who hasn't gotten tenure yet today. <laughs> so it's been an encouraging morning. Hey, how's everybody doing today? It's good to see you. Good to see you. Go ahead and turn your Bible to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in chapter 4 today. We'll be there in a few minutes. Um, several years ago, I was a small groups pastor at a large multi-campus church in Dallas. And at one point, we had over 90 small groups that met all around the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And the stated goals of those groups were to help people find these things that, in hindsight, are a little bit nebulous. Uh, Things like community and connection. And these are words that people use within the church, things that we say we want to find, and things that church leaders kind of create and perpetuate ministries seemingly for the purpose of, hel- of helping people find. Um, but when you start to ask people, what, is, what does that mean to you? What does community mean to you? And what does connection mean to you? One of the things that you will click quickly learn is that you'll get a lot of different answers from people because it means something specific to everybody. The real point for us, if we were being honest, was that we hoped people would find whatever it was that they were looking for because we knew if they found that within the church, they probably wouldn't leave. And so behind the scenes, we talked about groups as the thing that closed the back door of the church, right? The thing that closed the back door of the church. So something that exists so that people don't come into our church uh, and sit in a worship service on Sunday morning for a couple of years and then, you know, not really make any friends or not really build any relationships. And then after a couple of years of sitting in a service, they just kind of go, meh, and they leave. And the reality is, is that happens every week in, in churches across America. People come expecting uh, maybe something mystical to happen in the corporate worship environment and they sit there and they sit there and they sit there and maybe whatever it is that they're expecting to have happen doesn't happen and when they don't have deeper connections with other people, they eventually go, well, I'm just going to do something else on Sunday morning. And so we talked about the groups within our church, all these dozens of groups, as hopefully kind of preventing that from happening. 
And so while many of the groups that were out there studied the Bible every week and occasionally participated in service projects together, um, the primary goal from leadership was more organizational in nature. In a church of 4,000 people, we wanted them to feel like they could connect. And so one of the I mean, it's funny looking back on it, but one of the things that we did was we had speed dating events so that people could find groups to be in. And so we would have a room like this, and we would set up round tables around the room, and we had 20 groups that maybe had some space available in the group. And for two hours, uh, people would move from table to table around the room, meeting the group leaders, meeting some people in the group, and kind of feeling out, is this the the particular place or the group of people that I want to connect with in this church? And I would literally stand on stage with a gong. (laughs) And every five, ten minutes, I go, and, and everybody would move to the next table. And as silly as that sounds, this event was actually fairly effective because it gave people some actual face-to-face time with other people in the church that they didn't get just coming to a worship service on Sunday mornings. You know, you see kind of the same people walking in, and there's just very cursory, hi, how are you type stuff. Here's the worship folder, bulletin, or whatever you call it, and we come in, and we sit, and we leave. And that, if that's your experience of the church, then you haven't had the opportunity to connect in deeper ways with people. And so this was just a time where people could figure out that, hey, these people aren't weird, and, and so maybe I do want to go you know, to their house and spend some time with them. Um, One of the reasons why I think that this was so effective, though, was because it played into our natural tendency to be consumers. It played into our natural tendency to be consumers. People actually got to shop, to some extent, for who they wanted to be friends with in the church. Or for who they wanted to try to initiate relationship with within the church. And so people would come away from this event and they would go, well, those guys live in my neighborhood or those guys have kids that are the same age as my kids or those people have a swimming pool and um, uh, that guy's the vice principal at my kid's school or they're on our baseball team or whatever the case may be. Or they just seem like cool people that are in the same life stage as us and we would love to get to know them better. Now, if we're being honest this morning, uh, we all approach the church with a consumeristic mindset. Every single one of us approaches the church with a consumeristic mindset. And what I mean by that, and I do this and you do this, is we all come to the church with our list of things that we're hoping to find. We come to the church in the same way that we come to the grocery store to some extent. These are, these are the things that we are hoping that we're going to leave here with. Things that we think will benefit us or things that we think will make our life better or maybe things that we think that we need. And, and to some extent, this is the way that we approach everything in life. Will this be good for me? Does this fit my family? Does it have what I perceive to want or need? And so people would come away from this speed dating event going, we like this group, and we kind of like this group, and we think this may be a a cool group to go to as well. And so people would say, hey, we're we're actually going to try out several groups and, and see where we fit. And that seems maybe like a good idea, and what I learned quickly was that it was just demoralizing to group leaders. Because people would come to their group, 
and then never come back, you know, and they would wind up happy in some other group. And it was kind of like a first date type thing where you go out and then you never get called back and you go, what did we do wrong? Like, you know, we, we felt like there was a connection there and the other person doesn't feel the same way. And so it was deeply discouraging to group leaders. And um, in hindsight, I kind of feel like my job was to be a Christian matchmaker to some extent within the church. Um, I would find great potential group leaders. I would try to get them trained up, help them launch a group, and, and then help find people who wanted to be in community with them. And it seems simple enough, but for me, there were significant nagging problems with that whole approach. And um, I think these are problems that if, if we don't consider these and address these, even in our own church, which is obviously a, a much smaller church and not a church where we have dozens of small groups around town, but if we don't consider these issues and address them, um, they can grow and become pervasive. Uh, the first issue that was a problem for me, and these are things that I kind of, I think, came to understand over time. The first issue is that it seems to me, it seems to be the case that the closer we grow together, the more exclusive we become. The closer we grow together in relationship with each other, potentially, the more exclusive we become. And this is a problem because the church should be the most radically inclusive, exclusive place or people. The church should be the most radically inclusive, exclusive people. And if you consider the mode of Jesus and the way that Jesus operated, Jesus obviously was open to everyone, wasn't he? Jesus interacted with everyone. Jesus had open arms for everyone. But then there was this little thing of, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so this grace and forgiveness is available to everyone, but there is an exclusivity to it as well. The second thing that I came to realize over time is that community and connection, those kind of buzzwords, which we could loosely define as just uh, feelings of togetherness, community and connection with each other does not automatically result in discipleship, right? Just being together and experiencing togetherness under the banner of church does not automatically result in discipleship, meaning it does not automatically result in us being more like Jesus in our everyday lives. Just being together in and of itself does not naturally produce that. And hopefully we can agree this morning that that that's really the goal of the church. We talk about this a lot. We talk about the mission that Jesus has sent us all on, those of us who claim Christ, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, Jesus has sent us to make disciples. He hasn't sent us to simply 
have great fellowship with each other. As wonderful as that is, he hasn't simply sent us to just be together and for there to be solidarity or feelings of community or family and togetherness. He has sent us with the purpose of making disciples. And if we don't do that intentionally, it does not just naturally or magically happen. Third, um, in the same vein, Bible study in and of itself does not necessarily result in discipleship. Just simply coming together and studying the Bible, as great and wonderful and essential as that is, does not necessarily result in people becoming more fully formed followers of Jesus. And really, I find the practice of faith, being in situations where you actually have to exercise faith, is one of the primary ways that we actually grow in our faith and grow in becoming more like Jesus. When we're put into situations and when we intentionally enter into situations where we have to trust Jesus, where we have to make some kind of a decision, do I believe he's good, right? Do I believe that he has my best interest in mind? Do I believe that he's a loving father? Do I believe that he's going to take care of me? If you are not ever in situations where you actually have to rest in the knowledge that he is good, or to wrestle with what do I actually believe about him, if you're never in situations where that's the case, then more than likely you are not becoming more like Jesus. Practicing our faith, exercising our faith, is a key component of that. And then finally, uh, number four, this realization that consumerism is a cancer and it will snuff out effectiveness in mission and discipleship if it is allowed to just run rampant. Consumerism is a cancer that will snuff out effectiveness in discipleship and mission because consumerism ultimately leads you to be inordinately focused on what is not rather than what is, and it leads you to be inordinately focused on what I want out of this experience rather than what does God want out of us. So, those four things were significant nagging problems for me. The biggest thing that I realized, though, was that we never really told people in a, in a clear and concise way what we hoped for them as individuals, what we hoped for their group experience, what we wanted for them, and, and even more importantly, what we believed that God wanted for them. And I think what God wants for us is more and greater and bigger than a simple feeling that we belong or a simple feeling that we have friends or a simple feeling like these are people that I connect with. And we'll talk more about that as we move on. Chances are, for most of you here, this is not the first church that you've ever been a part of in your life. 
Um, chances are uh, you've been a part of several churches in your life, and all of those churches have had some kind of group system. Now, these groups might have been Sunday school classes where everybody sat uh, in rows like this and some guy in a suit and tie stood at a podium and taught Bible study. Um, that experience for you might have been at someone's house where everyone would gather in a circle and you guys would watch a video together or, you know, you'd uh, read uh, some scripture together and then talk about it. Uh, It could be that you had some other kind of Bible study experience within a church or that you went to a group for moms of preschoolers. All of these things are groups, right, that the church is using and employing to give people some kind of feeling of connection to what's going on, that they belong to the body in some way. Whatever the case for you, you come into Covenant Church with some kind of preconceived notion of what a church group is that's based on the experience that you've had in other places. But what I want to do today and regularly is remind us all of what this is, what it isn't, and also what we hope for. Right? What we desire that this experience would be like for us. Also, I want to attempt uh, to ask you if it's possible for you to try to check your list at the door. Whatever that list is for you, the things that you feel like you're looking for, the things that you're coming in going, this is what I need, this is what I want, or this is what my family needs. I'm not saying that those things are bad. What I'm saying is, could you maybe just take a moment and set those things aside, if possible, and come into today with just a blank slate and an open mind and a consideration of what what does God want? For us. So let's begin by getting into the what it isn't. What are community groups not at Covenant Church? First of all, community groups are not our attempt to simply close the back door. This is not something that we're doing because there's been a mass exodus or people just aren't finding other people that they like or that they want to be in community with or friends with or anything like that. And so we've had to kind of craft this thing so that there is an easy pathway for people to find relationships. That's not really what this is at all. Uh, Community groups are not simply a venue for group Bible study. Group Bible study is a part of what happens, but the goal is not simply that we would come together and have Bible study. Uh, Community groups are not the friendship incubator of our church, okay? Community groups are not the friendship incubator of our church, and and so it's possible that you're part of a group and you feel like, man, we just haven't clicked together yet, and that's a real thing, and that's something that's important and that we should talk about, but we have to also articulate that the goal is not simply that we would have great friendships, even though I believe that when we're actually pursuing the correct goal, that will be an outcome. Also, community groups are not just something we do because that's what everyone else does, right? We're an American church, and every church in America has some kind of corporate worship experience, and then they have some kind of small group experience, no matter what they call it, community groups, life groups, small groups, cell groups, whatever, whatever it is. The reason why we have this and the reason why we're talking about this is not simply because that's just the model. There's something more here. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. 
beginning in verse 11. This Apostle Paul writing, and the context here is he's talking about gifts that God has given to the church. And he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, Into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. This idea here from the Apostle Paul um, is that there are people that God has specifically gifted within the church and he has given them these specific gifts for one express purpose and that express purpose is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Now, if you grew up in a Catholic background, uh, that, that word saint may have a little bit of baggage for you. We're not simply talking about special people here or, or extraordinary Christians or people who were martyred or people who maybe did some kind of miraculous thing. When, when Paul uses this word saint, he's talking about believers, everyday believers. And so when he says equipping the saints for the work of ministry, he's not talking about a special group of people. He's talking about all people who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so when he says, look, God has given apostles, he's given prophets, he's given evangelists, shepherds, teachers. When he talks about those people, he's saying those people are gifts to the church, but they have an important role. And their role is building up the body for the work of ministry. And so the idea there is that as these people invest in the church, that the saints, followers of Jesus Christ, believers, people of faith, the saints are changing because of this work of investing in the ways that these people are gifted, the saints are changing and the change that is happening in their lives is that they are growing up into Christ, that they're actually becoming more like Jesus Now, a lot of people make uh, a lot out of these individual roles. Uh, Sometimes you'll see this described as the apest or the five-fold ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Uh, Some students of the Greek language in which this was originally written... uh, disagree that these are five separate roles and would say that this last role of shepherd teacher uh, is actually one role. It's not two separate things and that wasn't Paul's intention here. He was saying that the shepherd teacher is a singular 
role within the church. And it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. What matters is that all of these giftings, if the church is going to be built up and edified and equipped for the work of ministry, then all of these roles need to be represented on some level within the leadership of the church. It doesn't necessarily have to all be like elder leadership, but these all need to be people who have some kind of voice in equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And so, so what are these roles? When we talk about the apostles, certainly we're talking about a specific group of men in the New Testament who had been with Jesus and then were sent out by Jesus to be disciples who make disciples. But when you consider who the apostles were and what they did, uh, these were essentially the entrepreneurs of the church, right? These were the guys who were the risk takers, they were the initiators, they were the church planners, they were the starters, they were the launchers, they were the ones who were always kind of out front. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul sometimes, and, and so Paul had this ability to kind of come into a city and bring people together under the banner of the, of the gospel and initiate a new church, right? Get it planted, get it going, and then he was gone. And I, I can't help but think about how, how difficult that had to have been for a lot of the people who kind of came to faith under Paul's leadership. You ever thought about that? Even in today's world, people get very attached to their pastors, Especially if God has done some kind of dramatic work in your life in and through the ministry of that person, right? We grow very attached to other people that God has used for our good, don't we? So, so just think for a moment about a guy like Paul, right? And how difficult it must have been when Paul said, I'm out, you know? All of these incredible things have happened. We have seen God do miraculous stuff through this guy. He got this whole thing going. My life has been forever changed as a result of his ministry. And now he's gone. And he's writing us these letters telling us that we're blowing it now, you know. <laughs> but Paul was an apostle, right? He wasn't a guy who was, that, who was just going to stay in Corinth and like maintain the church. He had to go. He had other places to be. He had other people to see. We know from Scripture that one of Paul's big goals was to make it to the city of Rome. He always had the next thing on his mind and on his heart. He was always looking to the future. Listen, guys, the church, even today, needs people who have those characteristics, don't we? I'm not talking about people today who we would call apostles. No, I'm just talking about people who have this risk-taking, community-building, initiating spirit. People who are always looking down the road to see what's next. How do we get there, right? What needs to change within us? What's next? The church needs that. The prophets in the Old Testament were the truth-tellers. Prophets were not popular people by any stretch of the imagination. There were men who came around and told people what God thought, right? And most often it was the exact opposite of what people wanted to hear. 
You look at guys like Jeremiah and Hosea and just miserable, miserable lives because they were despised and hated and rejected by people. But yet in a world today where the concept of truth has become kind of a floating thing, right? Where something can be true for you, but not true for you, and it's a different truth for me, and whatever you want to believe is true is true. Right? When, when our world is in that place, man, how critical are people that have that ability and that gift to see what is and a clarity of vision from God's word to be able to say, here is what is true. Here is what we know to be God's heart, to be God's will. Here are the things that are non-negotiables when it comes to following God. We need people who hold fast to those things and who continually put them in front of people. You know, in this text this morning, verse 15, it says, speaking the truth in love, which is often used in today's world uh, as a way for me to, like, criticize you, right? But somehow, you know, kind of Jesus juke you, you know? I'm just speaking the truth in love, but you're a jerk, you know? But this is a prophetic role, isn't it? This idea of speaking the truth in love. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to change it to somehow make it more palatable for you. But it doesn't mean that I don't love you. In fact, the reason why I'm sharing it is precisely because I love you. And in a world where to not agree is somehow perceived as hatred, this is incredibly important for the church. Uh, The evangelist is the inspirer. The evangelist is the person who is able not only to articulate the message of the gospel, but is able to kind of rally people to do this thing, right? The evangelist is not uh, Jerry Falwell, right? The evangelist is not maybe what we think of as like the 1980s you know, archetype of evangelist, televangelist. Oftentimes for us that word is murky because we associate it with phoniness um, or or just kind of ridiculousness um, or hypocrisy. But the evangelist, as far as Paul is concerned, I believe, is simply the one who's holding the banner of the gospel high. He is proclaiming uh, this truth of the gospel with clarity and with passion, and other people hear it, and God has, for whatever reason, given that person the gift to declare the word of the Lord in a way that other people go, yeah, man, let's do this thing, right? Like, this is something worth giving my life to. This is something I want to follow, and, and it's because this person articulated it to me in a way that I never heard before, or somehow God used their words to speak to my heart, and I'm different as a result of it. So having somebody with that evangelical gift to clearly articulate the gospel is important. And then the shepherds or shepherd teachers are more of these kind of pastoral figures within the church, right? Paul had some shepherding gifts, but Paul was not necessarily the guy that was like going to dig in 
with you in your city over an extended period of time. No, he sent guys like Timothy to do that work, right? He equipped Timothy to go be that person. And if you read his letters to Timothy, it's all about teaching Timothy how to do that thing, how to shepherd people, right? How to kind of bear with people, how to show respect to other people within the church, um, teaching them the word of the Lord as they go. So all of these things are essential within the church, and unfortunately, you find a lot of churches that don't have all of those gifts represented in their leadership structure, and so there is a deficit. And so it's important for us to always kind of be looking at what are those things. But here's the most important thing, and the point I want to make, is all of these things involve the ministry of the Word. All of these things involve the ministry of the Word. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the word of God and how we as God's people are seeking to live in response to the word of Christ. So all of these things are essential and they all involve the word, but there are distinctions there to be made. So a lot is made out of these gifts. A lot of work in today's world, I think, goes into trying to figure out, do we have all of these gifts represented? And this isn't in every church, but in a lot of churches. You can go online and you can take a test to see if you maybe have one of these giftings. Um, but this isn't just a personality assessment, right? This is, this is very obviously, in this context, something that God has given to specific people and he has called them and sent them with specific purposes. What I want to focus in on today in our last few minutes, though, is not that. It is the result of the work that those people do, which is the rest of the text that we read this morning. So he gave those guys uh, to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. But then he says, here's the goal. Here's what he means by building up the body of Christ. He says that we would attain to a unity of the faith. This is verse 13. That we would all attain to a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the fullness or to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So unity, knowledge, maturity. And he says the reason why this is so important, verse 14, is so that we may no longer be children. So that we no longer may be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, carried about by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These people, gifted by God, sent by God into the church, are ultimately working through the ministry of the word to build up the church to the point where we have unity, where we have clarity of the knowledge of who Jesus is, what Jesus means, what the gospel means for us, and that we have Maturity, unity, clarity, maturity. 
And so just think about those three things real quick. Unity, clarity, and maturity. If we are coming to the church with our list and our goal, each and every one of us, is to get the needs or the wants on our list met, then there is no way we will ever arrive at a place of unity. I don't care what you say you believe. If what you want is not what I want, is not what you 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 want, and certainly isn't what God wants, then we will never arrive at a place of unity. Luke mentioned earlier the fact that things kind of hit the fan pretty early on for the church. You know, in the beginning of the book of Acts, there seems to be this kind of idyllic period where there's 120 people and they're gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit's about to fall and they're all of these incredible, they're sharing everything. You know, I'm going to sell my property to, you know, provide for you. And then before you know it, like people are getting drunk and they're neglecting the poor people that are in the church. And, you know, it doesn't take long for our sin nature to creep out. It doesn't take long for us to pursue what we want over what God wants, and it also doesn't take us long to pursue what we want over what would be best for other people, right? So it's no wonder that the first thing on the list for Paul is unity. Like, if we don't have unity of purpose, of vision, of intentionality, then we're going nowhere. If we don't have it, then the church is not actually going to be the church in the way that God desires it. Secondly, if we don't have clarity of who Jesus is, of what the gospel is, of what the word of God is, and this is, a, this is a part of unity, isn't it? Right? If we're not all on the same page with what that stuff is, then we're not going to move forward together. We're not going to grow up into Christ because we're going to be fighting with each other. And that happens for the early church as well, doesn't it? It doesn't take long before people are coming around going, well, I'm really a follower of Paul, or I'm really a follower of Apollos. These are the guys who had an influence in my life. And so now I'm trying to kind of rally under their banner rather than under the banner of Jesus, right? And we see this in today's world as well with denominationalism. Right? I'm going to rally under the banner of John Calvin or Martin Luther. Or I'm going to rally under the banner of the United Methodist Church. Or I'm going to rally under the banner of the Southern Baptist Church. And I'm going to make that my identity. The problem with that is that that is not the identity of Jesus. Right? The identity of Jesus is a wholly different thing. When we rally under the banner of, of a man-made sect or a man-made division, no matter how right or good you may think it is, or how biblical you may think it is, when that is how you are identifying yourself, then there's a problem. I'm Paul's, I'm Apollos's. Forget it. I'm Jesus's. And my goal is to follow Jesus. And our goal together should be to follow Jesus. And we need these people to help us navigate what is true, what is next. We need these people to rally us and inspire us, to keep us pressing forward, to keep us asking hard questions. But the goal is not to grow up into Paul. The goal is not to grow up into John Calvin. 
The goal is to grow up into Jesus. In maturity. Unity, clarity, and maturity. So one of the things, uh, we do this thing called Fort Shreveport, which is a local missionary training program. And one of the things that we kind of bring out in the teaching as a part of that program is we say that, hey, listen, believers, you are not building the kingdom of God. Right? When you kind of go out and do the work of being a missionary, it is not the work of building God's kingdom. God's kingdom already is. Right? God's kingdom is already fully formed. God's kingdom is a place, a realm, where God reigns and God rules. Everything is as God would have it be. And when you follow him, that's a wonderful thing, but don't have delusions that you are somehow creating his kingdom. You don't have that power, right? That's not something you can do. But here's what you have been sent to do. You have been sent to build the church by making disciples. By making disciples. Notice what he says here. Verse 13, that we would attain to the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, immature Tossed to and fro. Oh, I heard this, so now I believe this. No, I heard this, now I believe this. Have you guys ever experienced this before in your own lives or with other people that you know who it seems like they're, they're constantly at some other extreme of the spectrum? They're just being tossed back and forth? I've seen plenty of people like that over the years in church ministry. I've struggled with this in my own life, trying to find balance in the truth of Christ. Carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, exclusivity again, right? That this would be a radically inclusive place, but there is an exclusive message that Jesus alone is the way. You will not be saved by your denomination. You will not be saved by your church structure or model. You will not be saved by your favorite pastor, leader, person. You won't be saved by any of that. It's only Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And so we have to speak the truth in love if we are to grow up into Him who is the head of the church. And so the model, the picture, is that the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. But that somehow the body itself, the intention is that we would actually grow up into the head. That we would actually, the body, that the, the body would actually become more like Jesus. And that there is this constant progress in this direction. Because it is Jesus in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, with all of this in mind... What, what's the purpose of gathering together? 
Not only on a Sunday morning, but what's the purpose of gathering together in community groups? When you think about this, that we would be growing up into Jesus, what is the purpose for us? Well, the purpose is that ultimately we would be equipped for the work of the mission. And just sitting and listening to a sermon week after week after week doesn't necessarily result in you being equipped for the mission. If you don't want to be equipped for the mission, then you're not going to be equipped for the mission. It's as simple as that. But if your heart's desire is to follow Jesus, if your heart's desire is to be a disciple of Jesus, then I can promise you that 30 minutes, an hour on a Sunday morning is not going to satisfy that desire for you. You're not going to come away going, man, that's all I need, and now I can tackle the next week. No, you've probably, you've probably forgotten what was said by the end of the day. We're being honest. And so there has to be more. There has to be Christian community. Not just nebulous, I need community because I need connection. No, we need Christ-centered community. Which is this, that you and I... And these people over here, that we have a sense of unity, that together we are seeking to grow up. That together we are seeking to no longer be children. That together we are seeking the truth of who Jesus is. And that we need each other in the pursuit of that. If there's going to be unity and clarity that results in maturity, you can't do that by yourself. You need these people, and then you need the encouragement and the support of community that's rallying around the banner of the gospel. So community groups at Covenant Church... Not just the place where we study the Bible. Not just the place where we find some friends. Not just the place where I connect so that I don't want to leave. Community groups at Covenant Church are the place where we are equipped for the mission of God. It's the place where we're equipped for the mission of God. Uh, We had a community group training back in January. And we threw out this idea... And that is that we would be a collective of believers on mission throughout our cities. When we talk about what is Covenant Church, that we don't talk about it in terms of what happens here on Sunday morning. This is more of a bonus for us. This is a time where we all get to come together and enjoy uh, Jesus together and celebrate Jesus together. But that when we talk about community Uh, When we talk about Covenant Church, what we would talk about is the fact that we are all seeking to go on mission for Jesus in our cities. That we would be a collective of people who are seeking to do that. And sometimes we use this language of a team of missionaries versus a missionary team. Um, So if our goal is to grow up into Jesus, who is the head, 
then if you remember, Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all things I've commanded you. So Jesus was sent with a mission, and he has sent his followers with a mission. He has sent his followers in community together with a mission. And so if we are growing up into Christ, then we are growing up as missionaries, as sent people. And so within the context of your community group, (coughs) are you a team of missionaries, right? Are you a team of people who are coming together for the purpose of growing up into Christ so that you can be sent out in your everyday life? Um, If we're being equipped for the mission... And that's what's happening in that context, then the result should be that we kind of look around and go, hey, we're we're kind of a team of missionaries. We're not all on the same exact mission because we go to different workplaces every day, right? We go to different parts of the city every day. Our kids go to different schools, whatever the case may be. We live in slightly different neighborhoods, but we are all sent people who are being sent out with the same mission and we are coming together with unity of purpose to grow up into Jesus, So we are a team of missionaries, ideally. And then in closing, um, one of the things that we talk about a lot as a staff is what what makes Covenant Church different? You know, it's a good question, I think. There are a lot of churches that are very similar around here. Um, There are a lot of churches where if you're looking for a traditional American church experience, you you can want there are dozens, if if not hundreds maybe, in this area that you can walk into and get basically the same experience. So what's different about us, right? What's something unique that God's wanting to do in this place? And and the thing that uh, Luke and Jason and I have kind of arrived at is that our desire, our heart, is that this would be a place where if you claim Jesus, it's going to be very uncomfortable for you to not be a missionary. That that would kind of characterize our church that this is a place for everyone. This is a place where we declare the gospel, where we talk about how beautiful Jesus is, how worth it Jesus is. And if you're somebody that comes into the mix here and says, yes, I want to be a part of this community. I want to link arms with this community of faith. I want to grow up into Christ here, but I don't want to be on the same page with everybody else. And I certainly don't want to change in my own life and I'm not willing to sacrifice the list of things that I came in here with, then this is probably going to be a place for you where you're going to be uncomfortable, right? And as other people are living on mission together every day, it's going to stand out when you are not. And if you claim to believe the same thing about Jesus that other people claim to believe but yet there is not fruit or there is not evidence in your life. Unlike in many churches where people are more than happy to allow you to just continue to exist and not say anything about it, this is actually a place where because we love you, we're going to say, hey, what's up with this? What's up with this discrepancy between what you say And what seems to be true of your life. And that is offensive, isn't it? 
when you just start bringing that stuff up. But I can think a few better examples of what it means to truly speak the truth in love. So we're all going to be in different places on that. None of us are perfect, right? None of us have it all figured out. None of us have it all together. But we want this to be a place, a people, a community, where we have a unity of purpose and we have a clarity of vision who Jesus is, what the gospel is, why it's worth it, and that together we are growing up into the head, Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And God, it gets difficult, I think, to to hold fast to your truth. And I think it's difficult in this world today to embrace the kind of love that you model for us. Because your love, Father, is not this love that validates whatever we want. But rather, the love that you model for us is a love that says that you have a goal for our lives, you have a desire for our hearts and that you are willing to sacrifice everything to see us arrive at the place that you desire for us. And if it's necessary for us, for you to chastise us in that process or for you to discipline us in that process so that we arrive at the good that you have for us, Father, you don't hesitate to do that. And in fact, your word tells us that one of the ways that we know we are loved by you is when you chastise us, when you redirect us. And it is the definition of love as far as you're concerned. Help us, Father, to find unity. Help us to set aside our wants and wishes and pursue your heart together. God, help us to grow up into Jesus. Help us to desire that for our lives, to want it, to hope for it, to pursue it together. It's in your name. Amen.